Recovery Elevator, episode 165. Yeah, it's pretty intense to come to in jail in a holding cell in a suicide dress, not knowing what the hell happened. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Darla. She's from Grand Junction, Colorado. She's 52 years old. She's a mother of two, and she talks about how her drinking became a habit. Okay, let's get started. Do I have a drinking problem? Part two. Do I have a drinking problem? Part one came out in March of 2015. It was actually the second episode of the Recovery Elevator podcast. There's no need to go back and listen to that episode to get caught up with anything. So you can just start with this one. So do I have a drinking problem? The question I asked myself for a decade. I got the idea for this podcast topic while reading Drinking, a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp. It's a fantastic memoir and I highly recommend it. This book was Cafe RE's last month's book club reading. I know, it's a book club where we actually read the book and we don't just get shit-faced. These book clubs do exist. They're pretty cool. On page 121 of that book, there's a questionnaire. So if you're listening to this podcast, no matter where you're at in your journey, you've probably filled out plenty of questionnaires. But I like this one because it A, tells you if you have a drinking problem or not, and B, it tells you of what stage your drinking problem is. So feel free to follow along with us. You don't have to write down the questions, just write down a yes or a no to the question. And I'm going to do it with you guys. And here's a preface to the test. The following questions put together by the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence are designed to help people decide whether or not they have a drinking problem. So let's get started. Mark yes or no to the following questions. Number one, do you occasionally drink heavily after a disappointment, a quarrel, or when the boss gives you a hard time? That's a solid yes for me. Number two, when you have trouble or feel under pressure, do you always drink more heavily than usual? Hmm, solid yes. Number three, have you noticed that you are able to handle more liquor than you did when you first started drinking? Actually, I'm not going to read my answers on the air. I don't want to create a bias or skew your results in any fashion. Okay, so number four, did you ever wake up on the morning after and discover that you could not remember part of the evening before, even though your friends tell you that you did not pass out? Question number five. When drinking with other people, do you try to have a few extra drinks when others will not know it? Question number six. Are there certain occasions when you feel uncomfortable if alcohol is not available? Question number seven. Have you recently noticed that when you begin drinking, you are in more of a hurry to finish that first drink than you used to be? Question number eight. Do you sometimes feel a little guilty about your drinking? So after question eight, I'd like for you to draw a line. We're going to differentiate the test in three different parts. Okay, number nine. Are you secretly irritated when your family or friends discuss your drinking? Number 10. Have you recently noticed an increase in the frequency of your blackouts? Number 11. Do you often find that you wish to continue drinking after your friends say they have had enough? Number 12. Do you usually have a reason for the occasions when you drink heavily? Number 13. When you are sober, do you often regret things that you have done or said while drinking? Number 14. We are more than halfway through. You guys are doing great. Number 14. Have you tried switching brands or following different plans for controlling your drinking? Hmm, you've heard that question before on the podcast. Number 15, have you often failed to keep the promises you have made to yourself about controlling or cutting down on your drinking? Number 16, 
Have you ever tried to control your drinking by making a change of jobs or moving to a new location? Oh, the geographical cure. Number 17. Do you try to avoid family or close friends while you are drinking? Cue isolation. Number 18. Are you having an increasing number of financial and work problems? Number 19. Do more people seem to be treating you unfairly without good reason? Number 20. Do you eat very little or irregularly when you are drinking? Number 21. Do you sometimes have the shakes in the morning and find that it helps to have a little drink? Okay, draw a line after 21. Parts 1 and Part 2 are complete. We are on the home stretch, guys. You're doing great. We just got five more questions here. Number 22. Have you recently noticed that you cannot drink as much as you once did? Number 23. Do you sometimes stay drunk for several days at a time? Number 24. Do you sometimes feel very depressed and wonder if life is worth living? Number 25. Sometimes after periods of drinking, do you see or hear things that aren't there? Number 26. And the last question on our test today. Do you get terribly frightened after you have been drinking heavily? And pencils down. Great job. That is the conclusion of the test. Now let's go to the answer key. Do I have a drinking problem? So I'm going to deviate from their answer key for a moment here and tell you if you're listening to a recovery podcast, if you're filling out the questionnaire that the host is reading on a recovery podcast, wondering if you have a drinking problem, then that's probably your answer. You don't even need to take the test. You probably have a drinking problem. Again, that's not for me to diagnose. That's for you to diagnose. But looking back, I made this question way more difficult than it needed to be for about a decade. And the very first time I took my first questionnaire, I know I was a sophomore in college. I had a couple yeses on that questionnaire, but it meant I had a drinking problem. So the true test should only be one question. If you're filling out a questionnaire of do I have a drinking problem and you do yes or no on that, if it's yes, you got a drinking problem. But the reason why I like this exercise is it kind of tells you what stage of alcoholism you are in. Okay, so the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence says if you answer yes to any of the above questions, again, any of the above questions, you have some symptoms that may indicate alcoholism. So if you answered yes for any of the questions in 1 through 8, it is said that you are in the early stages of alcoholism, which typically lasts from 10 to 15 years. Yes answers to questions 9 through 21 indicate middle stages of alcoholism, which usually lasts from 2 to 5 years. Yes responses from questions 22 to 26 indicate the beginning of the final stage. They don't list a time frame for the final stage, but they indicate it's the beginning of the end. Now, there's a couple things I want to talk about before we hear from Darla. So I was a solid yes for basically every question without equivocation, except for questions 9 and 12. Question 9. Are you secretly irritated when your family or friends discuss your drinking? When I first told my best friends, my mom and my dad about my drinking, they had no idea. I was good at hiding it. And I remember at this moment in the test, my addiction started chirping to me in my own voice saying, hey, even though we're straight yeses in the yes column, we got a no here, so maybe we don't have a drinking problem. And this is after like three and a half years of sobriety. So it's important to go with your gut feeling and not overthink the question and let your addiction do the answering. Number 12, do you usually have a reason for the occasions when you drink heavily? At first I answered yes on this. Yeah, I drink when it's sunny. I drink when it's cloudy. I drink when it's snowing, I drink when it's hot, and I drink when it's cold. I drink when my job goes well, I drink when my friends treat me well, I drink when I have a good time outside, and then I switch to no. I drank regardless of the reason. So while reading this book by Carolyn Knapp, 
I have the luxury of not reading it with this impending question overhead of do I have a drinking problem? But I remember when doing this test and reading that questions 22 through 26 indicate the beginning and the end or the final stages of alcoholism, I was like, oh shit, man, I was pretty close there at the end. I answered yes to every single one of those. Hell, I had a failed suicide attempt in 2014. Now, one of the questions you're probably wondering, how could somebody see or hear things that aren't really there? Those are hallucinations, right? Can alcohol cause that? Well, in my opinion, alcohol is the most dangerous and addictive drug on the planet, and yes. When I was in Spain, which actually precipitated my middle stages of alcoholism, that 10 to 15 year stage, Spain, España, made that happen within like three years. But for about six months straight, I would close up the bar, go home, drink more on my own, drink till about four, five, six in the morning, and I'd go to bed to the Braveheart soundtrack. I did this for about six months straight, blacked out, listening to William Wallace storm Falkirk with his army. And uh, yeah, it's the London Symphony Orchestra. Great soundtrack. But I remember flying back across the Atlantic, flying east to west, and I heard it. I heard the soundtrack. But the thing is, I didn't have earphones in looked under my seat. I thought for sure my iPod was playing somewhere, but I could not find it. I continued to hear the Braveheart soundtrack for about three and a half weeks after I did the geographical cure back to America. Scary, scary shit. So to recap, I guess the purpose of this test is to tell you at what stage of alcoholism you're at. If you're looking back at your test and say, wow, I scored two yeses and 24 noes, I surely can't have a problem. Again, if you're listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast, you probably have a drinking problem. And that is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Okay, enough out of me. Before we hear from Darla, let's hear from Cafe Artie. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe Artie, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Darla, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Darla, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober um, for three, a little over three years. Nice job. Congratulations. And, and when's the sobriety date? January 1st, 2015. Whoa, January 1st. Was this a New Year's resolution where you slowly realized throughout the month of January, like, wait, alcohol is total shit? No. <laughs> I wish it was that brilliant of an epiphany. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. No. Yeah. <laughs> My story will unfold, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. And I love those sobriety dates, like just... You know, New Year's resolution date, those big dates, because I read it a couple weeks ago, the average New Year's resolution lasts 17 days, and the percentage of people who stick with it is so low. So, A, you stuck with you. I don't know if a resolution, but uh, you stuck with it, and you made it this far, and I can't wait to hear more about that. 
But before we get any further, Darla, give listeners a little information about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Well, I I grew up in New Hampshire, actually, but I now live in Colorado. I've been in Colorado for about, well, I won't tell you how long, for about 13, since I was 13 years old. But I guess I'm going to tell you my age anyway. I'm 52. I did go to grad school out in California in San Francisco. So one of my jokes is I'm bi-coastal. I've lived on both coasts. And then I also have two children. My son's 23 and my daughter's 21. And they actually both still live at home with me. And I'm director of human resources. And I've been in the same job for about 17 and a half years. How big is the company you're uh, director of human resources for? Uh, A couple hundred people. You know, we're we're very seasonal, so about right now we have about 130, and during our busy time we go up to over 250. Wow. It's a small company. Wow, and that's I wrote that down with not one line underneath it, but two, Darla. <laughs> we'll circle the wagons <laughs> on that question, uh, or more on that topic in a bit. But, yeah, describe your drinking habits, Darla. You're 52. When did you first start to realize that alcohol was an issue? Wow. You know, I, I've thought about that a lot you know, trying to track back on where the um, train went off the track, so to speak. And, um, you know, I think ultimately I've come to realize that I've always been an alcoholic. I've had alcoholic behaviors my entire life, but I didn't actually drink alcoholically. I didn't run my life until I hit my mid-40s. You know, I did some partying in high school. I did some partying in college. did some partying in grad school. Not much. I was pretty focused you know, I had those wake up on the bathroom floor moments in college and uh, walks of shame in college, and uh, but it never ran my life. You know, if I had to write down how often I drank, I didn't have any kind of particular pattern at the time. It wasn't until I got into my 40s and after a year or two after my divorce, it just it became, became a habit. It became something, it started slowly with shooters on the way home from work just to kind of calm my nerve. And, mm-hmm. and then it became half pints on my way home from work. And then I started hiding those. And then it became, you know, a larger bottle, like a 750 that I would pour into half pints, you know, so <laughs> I could stash the half pints easier. It got really crazy and really sick. You know, the better we get, the sicker we were. And it's hard to summarize my drinking habits in, in a very short conversation, but, you know, I started hiding it and I really was only hiding it from my kids, but they knew, they knew I was up in my bedroom drinking. You know, it it started out just the weekend, you know, like Friday night, maybe, and then maybe Saturday night. And then it became, and I would never drink on Sunday. That was my rule. You know, those, one of my rules. Hard line and in the sand. It, yeah. <laughs> And then it became, well, let's start drinking Thursday night. And then Thursday, Friday, all day Saturday. <laughs> I'm not drinking Sunday, Sunday, so I'll just bump it back a day until I'm drinking exactly. every day. But Sunday, keep going, sorry. Yeah. And then, no, hey, well, that line moved. Because then it became Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then when I started drinking all day Saturday, I had to drink on Sunday because I was hungover. And <laughs> so... I started drinking Sunday, so that moved. You know, at the end, the only days I was not drinking was Monday and Tuesday, which I don't know why that was. I just I just wasn't. But it was, you know, first thing in the morning. I, I wouldn't drink during the day at all, but that thought was there first thing in the morning. I'd be at work, and something would kind of cause me a little stress, and I would think, oh, I can't wait to get off work so I can 
have that drink and have that relief. Yeah. And, and then he, can you add I'm some, sorry, go ahead. that's right. Can you make this chronological for us? Cause you're 52 now. Um, could you yeah, uh-huh. just try to put some ages behind? Cause I'm just curious of, you know, when did you push it a day back from now? Nah, okay, I'm not gonna drink Sunday. So now I'll just back it, push it back a day. Were you 45? Were you 40? Or was this like right before you got sober? Oh gosh, it's progressive. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. And so I would say probably around 45, I started drinking regularly and then 46, it progressed. And, gotcha. you know, so probably the last two or three years before, well, I've been sober for three. So I got sober at 50, right? I'll yeah. be 53 soon. And let me ask you a quick and, question here. I love how you said drinking became a habit before mm-hmm. we even know it. Right. And that's at the end of the day, it's yeah, we're physically addicted, but even worse, it becomes a habit. I love what you said there. But you, you know, at 45 to 47, was there a significant stressor in your life that added to it or was just kind of happened? You know, probably a little bit of both. I had a pretty traumatic marriage. My ex-husband, and this is my story, not his, so I won't go into a lot of detail about that. Sure. But there was a lot of addiction there that included some pretty scary drug addiction and and the result of his behavior was he was very emotionally abusive. It was just a really uh, scary situation. Mm-hmm. So and that was really difficult for me to get out of, largely because I, being the alcoholic that I am, <laughs> I wanted to control it. I wanted it to be what I wanted it to be. I wanted this little nuclear family. So I hung in there in something that was very unhealthy, long past the time I should have. And I wasn't drinking at the time, but my behaviors were still very controlling. And this isn't, you know, queen baby, I like to say. (laughs) This isn't what I wanted. I want what I want, and I want it right now. (laughs) Damn it, um, now! So so I actually went through some therapy to try to manage either staying in the marriage or getting out of it. And my therapist was like, yeah, you know, you need to get the fuck out of there. I know you said it's okay to cuss occasionally, so I will keep it to a minimum. And so that's what I did with some help from the therapist and some, you know, my brother-in-law helped me. I had to get a restraining order. And so there was a lot of trauma. It was very traumatic. And I thought I was dealing with everything really well. And, you know, in retrospect, I was not. And it was a year or two after that that I started drinking. Gotcha. And, yeah. And I grew up around it, you know. My dad's an alcoholic, my brother, my grandfather. And so, you know, growing up, and my stepmother was, and growing up around it, I don't think that necessarily made me one, but it certainly made that uh, an easier go-to solution. There weren't barriers to it for me. Yeah, Darla, you mentioned this disease is progressive. I agree 100%. And the gentleman who who has a a PhD research degree from MIT right before you, um, he mentioned that clearly this this is a disease. It's it's genetically passed on. And you mentioned that you, your father was an alcoholic. And that's a question that I want to sprinkle in a little bit more throughout these interviews. Because the answer is always yes. If, uh, if It usually is. It's like, hey, is there somebody in your lineage that also had trouble with alcohol? So was, it was just on one side of your family too. Do you have any siblings who are also going through this as well? Yeah, pretty much my dad's side, my grandfather, his dad. So my paternal grandfather was an alcoholic too. Um, you know, he lost his job at a young age and never worked again. And my grandmother, the, being the good codependent, codependent she was, she mm-hmm. took care of him. 
And then my dad, he's never really self-identified as an alcoholic, but, you know, I remember as a kid getting in the car and he'd be like, is this a one-beer drive or a two-beer drive? And he would pack his beer cooler accordingly to how far we were going. And, you know, as I got older, he started drinking with me, and that was really cool, (laughs) or so I thought. And then um, my brother does identify as an alcoholic. He is not in recovery, and he's had um, more DUIs than I. Um, That's one family record I'm going to let him keep. (laughs) And You got this um, one, bro. (laughs) Yeah, I used to try to compete with him on everything, and I'm going to let him have that one. And, you know, he's also had domestic violence issues, all from alcohol, but he's not willing to um, give it up. And so he, but he self-identifies as an alcoholic. Okay. And my sister has addiction issues. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would say it's pretty, pretty predominant in my family. Does your father yeah. still drink? He quit. I don't see a lot of him. He's in New Hampshire. He has uh, prostate cancer. And sure. as a result of that, yeah, he's doing well. You know, he has stage four, but they have it pretty well under control. And I believe as a result of that, he has decided to quit drinking his nightly whiskey Mm -hmm. and his weekly handle of whiskey habit. And uh, he now smokes marijuana for his cancer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm the only one. My stepmother was in recovery. She's since passed away from breast cancer. Oh, gosh. She was in recovery. So mostly just, just people that are still suffering. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have an opportunity to be a trailblazer here and kind of lead lead by example in stealth recovery mode. And, and they'll just look at you and be like, wow, Darla's doing it. She's been doing it for a little over three years right now and climbing climbing 14ers. In fact, before I hit the record button, I was like, Darla, what are your weekend plans? And uh, she's like, oh, I'm going to go climb a 14,000-foot mountain. I was like, Darla, surely you're lying to me. There's snow on that mountain right now. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Turns out these mountains can also be summited in the wintertime. Yeah, it's pretty cool, Darla. I'm pretty excited about it. Last year, I took up mountain biking and had some really amazing opportunities, and I got to cross the Alps on a mountain bike last September There's with a, a group of women. Oh, wow. I bet that was amazing. Yeah, it was really, really amazing. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. have done it uh, drinking. <laughs> None of that stuff. Yeah, 14-er, hungover, or drinking. It, it's like That's like extremely dangerous, first off, but it probably just w- won't happen. I mean, they're long, epic journeys. And you mentioned earlier that you, you, you don't drink on Sundays. Were there any other rules that you put in place to say, hey, look, I, I got to get this under control. I'm not drinking, A, this time, that place. And, and did, the, did those rules work? Well, yeah, no, you, you pointed it out um, kind of already that the, they kept moving. You know, it was never going to be Sunday and it was never going to be during the week. And it, it just kept moving. And like I said, in the end, it be the only days I wasn't drinking regularly was Monday and Tuesday, and, and I suspect that would have changed as well. You know, I, I still had the rule in place I wouldn't drink during the day at work, but I certainly did go in hungover. So, yeah, I can't really think of any other rules I put in place because it just was happening so against my will. It was the craziest thing when I look back. I just really was drinking against my own will in the end. Yeah, I heard somebody describe addiction is in... It's us not being able to get enough of what we don't want. It's kind of a mouthful. You got to wrap your head around it a couple of times, but it makes sense because the cognitive dissonance is, is just unbearable. We wake up saying, I'm not drinking this stuff. We know it's poison. If we drink enough of it, we will die. I'm, I used, we swear it away for life. And then later that same day, the next day, whatnot, we're drinking again. And I agree against, yeah, your own will. 
Yeah, it's I agree with that 100%. And so was that your first attempt on 1-1-2015, or did you have attempts before that? No. Oh, gosh. I really didn't try to stop before that on my own volition. I had gotten a DUI, my second one, in February of 2014, and the court system said that I couldn't drink. <laughs> They said I shouldn't be drinking, you know, no drinking, and I was on these <laughs> daily check-ins, and, you know, I wasn't getting any help. I was going to DUI classes, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and that's, you know, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I continued to do therapy for the last three years, but what I found in those groups is that those people were really just trying to figure out how they could continue to drink, or what I really wanted was to stop drinking, but I ended up with a hot UA, and Sorry, they had me check in. Uh-huh. I, I had a hot UA. Not sure. Sounds like <laughs> a delicious pa- pastry beverage or, or pastry or dessert, but what, what is a hot oh, UA? My, hey, I was on paper. you gotta, you got to get up with these terms. So when I had the DUI, uh, the second one, I had refused to do any roadside testing or any breath or to mm-hmm. give any blood or anything like that. So they said, you know, okay, well, until your court time, you have to uh, check in with us call every day and either you got to come in and breathe or you got to come in and pee so I'd have to do a UA and I had drank because you know at the time it doesn't matter I drank and I got caught and the judge didn't really care for that and it's like well now you have to check in every day so I didn't drink for like seven months and I felt good about that, but that was sheer will, willpower and what we all refer to as um, white knuckling it. I, yeah. I really wasn't getting any kind of drunk. help. I yeah. wasn't really, yeah, I wasn't really looking at, you know, I took I took the alcohol out of it, which had always been my solution, was kind of vibrating, <laughs> but mm. I uh, really wasn't dealing with the reasons I drank to begin with and kind of just had resentments about not being able to drink. And I did things like, you know, go to July 4th parties where everybody was drinking and I didn't drink. And I went to football games and Broncos and didn't drink. And, you know, there was a lot of occasions where I, I did good. I didn't drink, but I wasn't working on being any better. And then I decided to drink around Christmas time. And, and I quickly realized I couldn't control it. Mm. Um, because I binged and the two or three days before Christmas, I, that weekend I spent binging and I was like, holy crap, Monday morning I'm going to work and I'm like, I feel like crap and I shouldn't be driving. And I didn't actually even have my license. So I shouldn't have been driving. (laughs) You actually uh, really shouldn't have been driving. (laughs) I really shouldn't have been driving. You and the state of Colorado were on the same page there. Yeah. Not proud of my behavior. And so then I decided, well, I don't want to be drunk on Christmas. My my kids were really, really happy that I wasn't drinking. And, but I didn't drink for another week. And New Year's Eve, I decided I was going to drink. Well, I now realized what was happening is I was relapsing. I didn't mm-hmm. have the language for it at the time. But I decided to drink New Year's Eve. And long story short, I ended up in a blackout drunk and found myself the next morning in jail. Nice. Yeah. Third DUI. Oh, third UI. Not nice. Yeah. But let's let's (laughs) cue the expedition of the sobriety process. I'm sure that sped up the process a little bit was a eye-opener. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty intense to come to in jail in a holding cell in a suicide dress not knowing what the hell happened. You know, the night before I hadn't planned on going anywhere, I just remember I had an intense fear Mm -hmm. and um, not to get sidetracked because I'm about to do that if I, you know, keep me reeled in here. But I, I now am 
been keenly aware of how fear drives so much of my behavior. And I had this intense fear. I ended up being home alone. And I just was fearful of being alone. Plus, it was a holiday. Yeah. I wasn't afraid that somebody was going to hurt me. It was a different kind of fear. I just It's a real trigger for me, loneliness. And I had no intentions of going anywhere. In fact, when I came to, when I when I finally got let, released from jail, I realized I didn't have my contacts in, I didn't have my glasses, I didn't have my cell phone. Hmm. I had no makeup on, which I don't do that. <laughs> and I was in sweatpants, you know, I was like, mm-hmm. where the, what the heck was I doing? I didn't want to be alone, and, and but I got to blackout drunk, and it's just, it terrified me. So it actually, yeah. To answer your question is it totally sped it up. I was so terrified that not only had I drank against my will, I did. I uh, had behaviors that were certainly against what I normally would do. I would never want to put anybody in harm's way, and that's exactly what I did. And I thought if I'm capable of getting behind the wheel of a vehicle um, and potentially killing people, what else am I capable of when I drink? And it terrified me. And I I knew then that I had to do something, that I needed help. So, Darla, I actually do know what that walk feels like out of the DUI jail cell. I had to give back my suicide-proof vest. It was green. I don't look good in green. I requested a blue one. All they had was green. My eyes are blue. So uh, I had to give that back, and I know that feeling. It's absolutely demoralizing it was one of the lowest points in my life but and i welcomed it i said finally this is i can't get any worse than this today is my sobriety date unfortunately i I had to go drink a lot more but good for you and what was that like you you walked out of there on the first and i mean it stuck this sounds like it has a happy ending but with a lot of painful moments i'm sure it was tough what was it like on the first and the second and the third well the second was actually the day i got out because as you know the first is a holiday and the judges weren't seeing anybody (laughs) <laughs> and as of midnight, <laughs> as of midnight on the thirty, yeah, as of midnight the thirty first, they the law had changed and said everybody has to go before the judge. So I did get a personal recognizance bond, meaning I didn't have to have money to put down. I was able just to walk out of there, mm. but I had to go before the judge. So I had to wait until it was a Friday, the second, to go before the judge. So at the time, they were only serving bologna sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> um, <laughs> So that was that had its own special joys, and um, of course, it being years. Once cereal, um, just, just add, of... add milk to your sandwich, <laughs> sweetheart. <laughs> I had lots of sellies, but of course, I was pretty hungover, so I wasn't really very hungry, and a lot of uh, incredible amount of anxiety. But uh, you know, I I wasn't able to get a drink. You know, truly, um, I, I might have had I not been locked up, but. I I knew I really had a keen awareness of um, this is a problem and I've got to do something about it. So I counted as my sobriety date, regardless of being locked away from it or not. But when I got out of there, you know, I had a lot of wreckage to clean up. So it was like getting my vehicle out of tow and, you know, just kind of figuring out what the hell happened. But it was, gosh, those first few days, I didn't know if I was going to live through them emotionally. I had so much shame. It was um, unbearable. I didn't know how I was going to live through. Sometimes it feels like your feelings are going to kill you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's the craziest thing. And I know intellectually they're not going to. It sure felt like they were going to. It was pretty intense first few days. And so, so how did you do it? Did you reach out to somebody? Did you go to meetings? Did you, what did you do? 
Well, called my attorney. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I I did the same thing. Yeah. I got my car out of the impound, and then I I actually walked across the jail street, and there was a lawyer like that close. Yeah, this guy's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, the attorney is a small town. The attorney's a friend of my dad, and our my judge is was my parents' neighbor. This is great. But I started going to therapy first, mm-hmm. and I did one-on-one therapy. I went to a local place, and they did a whole intake, and they diagnosed me as uh, having anxiety, depression, and alcohol dependency. So I had the trifecta, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty common for most of us. And so I started with one-on-one counseling and group therapy, and it still didn't feel like quite enough to me because, once again, even in the group, they had different reasons for being there. It was called seeking safety. It was for people with anxiety and some kind of um, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress, so have experienced trauma. And so they had me there, and I and that was great. I got some good tools from that, but still most of the people in that group weren't really looking to be sober. They, they were dealing with something else. And so I ended up in AA, and uh, I've been in AA, and I've continued therapy um, ever since. And so what did you do those first 30 days when, or whenever, in the, when, when cravings come? I mean, they can come at any moment. I've had cravings come after two years of sobriety. So what, what did you do, and what do you do? Oh, yeah, the cravings are, are different now. Uh, I certainly don't have the physical cravings I had. Uh, now it manifests more as just, you know, the quick thought runs through your head that drinking used to be a solution, and, you know, if anxiety comes on really intensely, like, oh, a drink might fix that or relieve me and you know in the first 30 days I just I think I had such a gift of desperation I just um, was so terrified I had a realization that one drink would lead to more that I had no control over it and I still feel this way that if I have one I'm not stopping at one and Mm -hmm. I don't know where it's going to end and the last time it ended with me in a blackout and I you know, I've already talked about, I don't know where that's going to take me, and it's terrifying. So I'm still pretty terrified of having one drink. So I feel, uh, as crazy as it's going to sound, I feel blessed that that happened to me, and especially since I didn't hurt anybody, because I have such a gift of desperation that I am just, I don't live in fear on a daily basis of it, because I know it's not going to happen if I just don't have that first drink. And what are some things that you did and probably continue to do that you didn't want to do? You know, people ask me for advice and, you know, I was like, hey, you're going to start doing things you don't want to do. And I know you had to do some things that you didn't want to do. So what did you have to do to stay sober? What I have to do? Well, I certainly didn't want to go to AA. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to. I don't necessarily, I feel, I've heard you talk about this, and I agree that I don't really want to use labels for myself, but I think it was really helpful for me in the first 30 days, uh, first year of, of recovery to identify as an alcoholic so I could get the treatment I needed. But I didn't, I didn't want to admit that I was an alcoholic. I didn't want to admit that something had, a, had control over me. I've always been a pretty independent person. And I also didn't really want to accept that I had any kind of fear. So I had to, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but I had to, uh, you know, accept that I had a problem, admit that I had a problem. And I had to accept, you know, what was going on that drove me to that first drink. Darla, you answered that question perfectly. I also didn't want to go to AA. I didn't want to get a sponsor. You did that. You said you didn't want to admit you were an alcoholic. You know, the label, right? A lot of people who are alcoholics or have EDR, shall we say, enhanced dopamine receptors, they still don't get to that point. 
And number three, you, you, you faced your fear or realized a lot of these decisions, my life is making in life is based on fear. So absolutely. You did three things that you definitely didn't want to do. I think it was a perfect answer. And, and Darla, I, early in the interview, I wrote down, I'm your director of human resources department and probably 50 or 60 episodes ago, I did a podcast episode about how being in recovery should be an asset and not a liability at work. Right. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't, you know, it's up to you to decide if you want to be open about your recovery and your work, but I feel like in somebody in human resource, de- resource department that you'll be able to put on some like X-ray vision here and see what's really happening. Cause you probably see people, um, struggling with their job and, and termination is, is looming and alcohol is the problem. I don't really know how to bundle this question together, but does this make any sense? Have, have you noticed that like, have, have you a been able to say like, look, I'm sober, like this is probably something that you're going to want to look into or, or B, have you, have you used it to your advantage? I would say what it's been like in my position as a person in recovery has certainly given me a level of compassion that others may not have. Okay. That's a and, great way to say it. Yeah. And they certainly the ability to try to help guide people towards resources. I can't, I can't get anybody sober any more than anybody could have gotten me sober. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I can be an example and I can show compassion and, and just, and love and, you know, try to work with people. And yeah, I mean, just as recently as yesterday, I was talking with a a guy whose wife was in jail for domestic violence. And I said, had she been drinking and she had worked for us at one point and I know she has a drinking issue and, Mm -hmm. and he's talked about it. And he said, yeah, she'd been drinking all day and he just got, done dealing with DUI stuff. So there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of opportunities to be like, hey, I'm here to support you. I'm not fully open and out about it. And that's something I'm I'm really praying about. I do have my concerns about stigma. It's a small town and I view view myself and it may be wrong to view myself this way as a, a professional in the community that I have a lot of contacts. And that can be a very positive way to make to make an impact and I'm, I'm doing that slowly. I'm kind of open about my recovery as I'm led to be, as I think it's going to, if I'm led to that, it's going to help somebody, then I will do it. I don't do it just because I think it's something that's really cool that I did, which I do think it's really cool that I did. And I think I'm a freaking superhero you know, for doing it. But Me too. You I, are. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it needs to be what's going to be helpful for that other person. Like, you know, even today before I came on, I prayed about, I want to help. You know, I just want to be of service to somebody. And so my bosses know about it. I had to be open with them and because I had to go to work release. And uh, so interestingly enough, the way my higher power works is uh, my boss's best friend is really involved in AA in Denver. And so he totally was supportive, but that's a little off the topic. So yeah, I do have a lot of opportunities in my professional dealings to to share, but I'm I am careful on how I do that. Yeah, and that's that's all on your own time, and uh, you are you, you're you know, Darla, I've I've never seen you and Superwoman in the same room at the same time, so you actually could be Superwoman, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know. So I think the most badass thing about you, Darla, is you're sober. And it does not surprise me that you're a director of a human resource department for a pretty large company. Um, a couple episodes ago, 
uh, I, I just, I said, what does an alcoholic look like? What does somebody with EDR enhanced dopamine receptors look like? And gosh, we are high achievers, high earners. We're highly educated. So that didn't surprise me at all. And just interesting thing. I wish I knew the company, but a lot of the huge companies like GE, uh, and more like there was one specific lead, but it, it, the, at the bottom line, pun intended, it's, it's a money, it's a, it's a business decision when it comes down to money. And they found that instead of just letting an employee go who was drunk, doesn't show up to work, they found it's more economically beneficial to put them through treatment because there's a lot of money to train an employee, especially in the aviation industry. That's why they have the HIMS program is instead of saying, okay, yeah. sorry, like you lost your pilot wings. Gosh, it takes so many years and so much money to train these people. It's more effective to put them through treatment. I don't know. I don't really know where I was going, going with that, but I just want to throw that out there. And, and Darla, I'm going to have the pleasure to meet you in person in October and up at 12,750 feet in Cusco. Tell me why you're going on this trip to Peru. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about that. I just really like to challenge myself. And, you know, one of the things I always wanted to do was travel. And I'm, I've had that these opportunities have come up and been in a position to to take the opportunities when they come up. And this is such an affordable trip, and I'm going to be with other people in recovery. The last trip I did to Europe, I was with a group of women. They were not in recovery. They weren't alcoholics. But it's just going to be such – I'm just so excited about the opportunity to share this adventure with a group of sober people and have service wrapped into it. It's just – this is an amazing trip. I'm really grateful you're putting this together and that I can be a part of it. Yeah, the only thing I'm bummed about is it's eight and a half months away. <laughs> I wish it was, yeah. wish it was coming up quicker. I'm already bragging about him. I'm like, well, not till October, but yeah, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Darla, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. Number one, Darla, what was your worst memory from drinking? Well, that would have to be coming to in a holding cell in a suicide suit and not knowing how the hell you got there. Yeah, no bueno. And we've all heard of the aha <laughs> moment. What was your oh shit moment indicating, ah, I can't control my drinking? It was probably that, that week before that happened when it turned into a bender. And I woke up Monday morning so hungover I wasn't going to go to work, but I had to go in. There were things I had to take care of that, that was up to me. I had to go. So I drove in hungover knowing I wasn't legal to drive. But oh shit. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And and what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Darla? I'm going to uh, keep doing this one day at a time. I've got a pretty good routine, and I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. I, I don't know if I'll drink tomorrow, but I'm pretty sure I won't drink today. Yep, one day at a time. I love it. And what's your favorite resource or resources in recovery? Well, I've got a couple. Yeah, I've got a lot of them. I call them tools in my toolbox, and I've got a lot of them. I, I meditate, I, I run, hike, mountain bike, lift weights, so I'm pretty active. I, my So my activities are huge and a huge part of my recovery and service, you know, helping others. Absolutely, absolutely. And Darla, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received was to get out of my own head and help others, and that helps um, if I'm having a craving, if I'm depressed, if I'm anxious, getting out of my own head. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Really uh, examine yourself. Um, are you willing to do whatever it takes? 
And if the answer to that is yes, then you've got a good foundation. Agreed. And alas, before we depart, Darla, give listeners your own customizer. You might be an alcoholic gift line. <laughs> I have so many of those. <laughs> we all do. It's but, so funny. <laughs> one of my, you know, the one that's closest to my mind at the moment is you might be an alcoholic if you come to in jail in a suicide suit and you wonder where the rest of your bottle is. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know there was some left. <laughs> bologna sandwich for breakfast come on state of colorado <laughs> i've heard they've they now started serving, serving better meals but that's what i got <laughs> yeah they're skimping on money i remember had i had like this tiny bowl of raisin bran I'm like dude come on <laughs> i'm not a toddler here i know it acted like a toddler for the last 24 hours but still come on <laughs> darla thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i can't wait till October. Be safe this weekend climbing your 14er in Colorado. That is oh, so thank cool. You. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Recovery Elevator, I've got some good news and then some bad news, followed by some good news. The decision-making process while getting sober in early sobriety, hell, and especially in long-term sobriety, can often be muddled by our addiction aligned to us in our own voices. And it makes these decisions incredibly hard to make. So here's the good news. Here's a trick, and it doesn't have to be that hard. If you're facing a crossroads, an early recovery, or wherever you are in your journey, and one pathway leads you to warm, fuzzy feelings, well, that's not the right one to take. The pathway that makes you feel uncomfortable, your heartbeat raises, and you just are scared about it, well, that's the one that leads to sobriety. So the good news is these decisions don't have to be that hard to make. The bad news is you usually have to go with the harder, more uncomfortable pathway. But the good news, again, is these decisions will pay dividends over time, a.k.a. long-term, healthy, great emotional sobriety. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 